Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grox. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, felines, malaria, and the fear factor. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Andy Hertzfeld to talk about the computing revolution. We'll also find out what your colon is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week, right here on Berkeley Rocks. Welcome back to Franklin Rocks. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you oh, doing, Frank? Pretty good. So we survived Christmas and New Year's, huh? It's it's good to be in the new year. I'm I'm surprised I made it this far, you know. Yeah. I, I figured at least 2004 I'd be done. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of new gadgets or technology do you want to see in the coming future? You know, I'd like to see uh, a robot president. A robot president? Because that certainly could be a little bit better than the one we have right now. I, I thought we ha- can find those at Disneyland. <laughs> you know, the Abe Lincoln. Oh, yeah, right. They're actually quite good, I think. I think actually the uh, mechanical singing bears would be better even. Uh, how about yourself? What would you like to see the coming year? I want to get allergy-friendly kittens. Allergy-friendly kittens? Yes, or hypoallergenic uh, cats. Are you allergic to cats? Not, but there's yeah. actually a firm in Los Angeles, Alucarp, which is going to genetically uh, create cats which uh, are hypoallergenic. Okay. Well, I, th- I know they already had hairless cats that they could breed, right? Indeed. But so this one is going to be without the allergen that's in the cats? Yes, yeah, so they, they breed them so that they don't have a uh, particular uh, glycoprotein. So they suppress the production of this glycoprotein using gene splicing. And they're going to start it off with the uh, British short hair species. Oh, okay. So basically that glycoprotein is what causes all the allergies. There's, there's yes, for a lot of humans. Oh, wow. Uh, and <laughs> isn't biotechnology great? You know, I, I'm just waiting for them to uh, super engineer again a uh, hypoallergenic president again coming back to that issue but <laughs> <laughs> hypoallergenic a lot of things but anyway so this will not be uh, expected for delivery until 2007 they'll actually start taking deposits of 250 bucks for, for a cat that's not too bad yeah well yeah. you have to pay 3500 upon delivery <laughs> there's always a catch indeed uh, alright well uh, I guess if you're allergic to cats but you always wanted one uh, check those guys out yes and uh, soon they also have Persian Maine Coon and Siamese you can get them in a six pack <laughs> it's like the iPod menu right <laughs> right <laughs> go down to Costco, get them all. <laughs> Anyways, go on to the website. It's uh, www.allerca.com. Okay, Frank, so what are your uh, hopes for the upcoming new year? My hopes? Uh, let's see. Actually, I have everything I want. Oh, brilliant. So. Well, now that I don't have my uh, own boss. <laughs> <laughs> I've conquered my fears. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I think you actually have to conquer him before it's, everything's done. Mm. I may have to confront him one of these days. It's the apprentice. Yes. Meeting the master. The circle will be complete. Uh, well, so it's actually quite interesting to see when uh, people are afraid. A lot of it has to do with their facial expressions. Uh-huh. And you can tell quite easily when somebody's a little bit fearful. I'm scared, man. I can tell right now. <laughs> <laughs> but actually what happens is um, one of the key f- organizing features is actually the whites of the eyes. The whites of the eyes? Yeah. So, in fact, when people are afraid, their eyes become much more open 
Uh-huh. And it turns out, though, that researchers wondering, well, is this actually sufficient to uh, cue other people that they're afraid? So what they did is they just isolated out the eyes in a lot of pictures. Mm-hmm. They had pictures of both non-fear and fearful people. And uh, they tested this by taking a number of patients, putting them in a imaging scanner to look at their activity in their brain, in a particular part of the brain called the amygdala, okay. which senses fear and things like that. And they were able to show that just the image of eyes wide open with these huge white eyes could basically elicit the sort of recognition of somebody being fearful. So caffeine can cause fear, huh? Because it keeps my eyes open all the time. <laughs> I, You know, I get pretty damn paranoid when I'm uh, hopped up on caffeine. So this is quite interesting work, and uh, if you're not afraid of uh, finding out more about this, you can uh, read it. It was research that was carried out by Paul Whelan and colleagues at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and published in the recent edition of Science. I'm scared. So do you recover from malaria yet, Charles? Uh, I'm still taking my quinine. <laughs> Quinine? Yeah. Doesn't that like cause a tinnitus or some earring after a while? What? <laughs> huh? The quinine? I'm sorry, I'm already... Uh, what? <laughs> oh, jeez. I'm sorry, Charles. I also heard it's a uh, hallucinogenic agent, so you can have vivid dreams with these uh, drugs. Well, you know, I, I would say that, but I'm talking to a uh, pink elephant right now. <laughs> oh, man. So it turns out the world's most benevolent man. The world's most benevolent man? Yes. What you know about who that is? Uh, Bill Gates. <laughs> okay. He's going to fund... Um, Research for producing cheap uh, anti-malarial drugs. Uh, okay, I thought uh, they've already they already have like a number of uh, pretty good solutions for malaria. I thought uh, they do, but it's actually quite expensive. Mm-hmm. And the best one seems to be uh, to derive uh, artemisinin from the evergreen plant Artemisia annua, and that seems the most natural uh, remedy for for, um, for malaria. So uh, I guess the um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation recently awarded. $42 million mm. to fund research for producing this drug from microbes rather than extracting it from the plant. Okay. And there's actually a team here um, affiliated with UC Berkeley, uh, chemical engineer Jay Keesling and his group, who have been able to engineer a strain of E. coli to produce an intermediate for this drug. Uh, it's called amorphodiene, and they believe that with a little bit more modification, with a little bit more of splicing, they can actually get the E. coli to produce the drug itself. You know, when are they going to engineer them to produce cocaine? Because that's <laughs> <laughs> what I'm waiting for. And <laughs> that's when Bill Gates should be funny. <laughs> He's a smart man. Yeah. Uh, well, that's pretty cool. So um, I guess if they can actually get it to produce the drug itself, I guess it would probably be almost like pennies on the dollar, really, for the, uh, the drug. Yeah, I mean, uh, supposedly... Malaria is one of the easier uh, diseases to fight, and if we find a cheap solution, uh, this could be probably the best $40 million that's right. been spent for a disease. Yeah. The other way, of course, is just to get sickle cell anemia, because that apparently helps as well. Ah, uh, <laughs> so two baths can uh, <laughs> help each other? Yeah, well, I, I guess apparently uh, the reason why it's thought that sickle cell anemia actually has a certain prevalence in uh, still the population, especially in Afri- Africa, is that one copy of the uh, sickle cell anemia gene actually is uh, confers some resistance to malaria. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So we still sh- we should keep it in the population, huh? <laughs> you know, as long as you like it or, you know, engineer some drugs. Either diversity way is good. Uh, diversity is really good. So if people want to know more about this? Uh, if people want to know more, they can, they can find us all over the web, or there's also an article in the recent issue of Chemical and Engineering News. Okay, Frank, have you ever found something by mistake? Um, 
I think I met you by accident, and we had this show by accident, right? Yeah, and it's it's continued to be an ongoing accident, actually. So, <laughs> you know, that was an accident. I guess someone should have avoided, but <laughs> <laughs> I believe in choice. Yeah. I believe in life. Indeed. Uh, so choose life. <laughs> choose our show. And if you if you continue to listen to this, <laughs> then I guess you have chosen it. Uh, it actually turns out that such serendipity has happened to uh, Harvard molecular biologist Yang Zhi and colleagues. They found the histone dimethylase. Histone dimethylase isn't that one of the components in, in your chromosomes? So your DNA wraps around the histone. Uh, well, it's certainly involved in uh, the histone. So basically, the histones are the proteins that the DNA wraps around. Right. But it looks like the histone dimethylase actually is involved in helping to turn genes on and off. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So by what? Wrapping and unwrapping them around the histones? Yeah, it would seem like it. Uh, basically, the demethylase uh, uh, somehow basically acts on the uh, histone to allow, I guess, the gene expression or uh, gene expression transcription to occur on the, uh, the DNA strand. So how was this an accident? Did they accidentally drop their saliva into the uh, Petri dish and then suddenly it unfolded or something? Uh, that's, uh, that's always a good story, right? Uh, <coughs> yes. So, um, yeah, actually what they were doing is they were just actually screening a bunch of genes that actually seemed to be involved in uh, regulating gene expression mm-hmm. and they actually found the the gene which actually works on the histone which actually research has been looking for for over a decade okay and they stumbled on it by by accident i think we should turn all the genes on just to see where it goes the more the merrier yeah i think we're chronically underutilizing our potential here <laughs> much like the 10 percent of the brain that we were only using right yeah <laughs> i saw the incredible hulk i mean we we're not using all of our potential <laughs> we gotta turn them all on yeah i think he was using too much of his potential <laughs> Especially in those skivvies, you know. <laughs> okay, so this was a very fascinating work, and it was published in the recent edition of Science Now. And that's all for our look at current developments in the world of science this week. This is Berkeley Rocks you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Annie Hurst will join us to talk about the revolution in Silicon Valley. So stay tuned. to Berkeley Grocks. Every so often, an event occurs so groundbreaking that it is deemed revolutionary, such as the story of Apple's Macintosh computer. And joining us today is a very distinguished fellow, Mr. Andrew Hertzfeld, one of the principal architects of the Macintosh computer. Uh, Mr. Hertzfeld, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grocks today. Uh, you're welcome. So I understand you maintain a couple of websites, including folklore.org and differentnet.com, and recently you were the author of Revolution in a Valley, the insanely great story of how the Mac was made. Mr. Hertzfeld, could you tell us a little bit about your book? Sure. Um, <clears throat> it's a really a collection of interlinked anecdotes, so each story itself is fairly brief, running from, say, one to six or seven pages uh, about... A- 
you know, really all the stories I collected uh, back in the time we were making the Mac, starting from um, the very first stirrings of the Macintosh in, in uh, early 1979 up through its um, introduction in January 1984 up until Steve Jobs got uh, dismissed from the project in uh, May 31st, 1985. I chose to stop it there because that was a, a pretty big shift. I, I didn't really intend to write a book. I, I, I wanted to create a website uh, oriented toward collective storytelling. So one important point is, is the book is not just mine, uh, but other MAC team members. Uh, there are four anecdotes uh, contributed by other MAC team members. And on the website, uh, there's about 20 additional anecdotes from different people who were around. I was a little worried that uh, books, other books I've, I've read about Apple are sort of limited by the individual's perspective and often self-serving. So I thought by creating a website that was completely open and anyone who had anything to say could um, post to it, uh, we'd get a, a more a fair and balanced story. And then um, Tim O'Reilly, who's a, the publisher of mm-hmm. uh, O'Reilly Books, saw the website and suggested we make it into a book. I was apprehensive at first, but um, I thought it was a worthwhile thing to do, and we ended up making a really beautiful book. Great. In your book, uh, a lot of it centers around your friendship with uh, Mr. Burl Smith, probably one of the uh, less-known characters on a Mac team. Could you tell us a little bit about him? Sure. Burl's a, Burl's a genius. He um, was the sole digital designer of the Macintosh digital board, the heart of the computer. And uh, in the tradition of Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple, who did just a brilliant job with the Apple II, uh, Burl took the techniques that Woz developed for the Apple II and took them even further for the Macintosh. So I sometimes say that Burl's logic board that he designed uh, in the early stages of the Mac project was the seed crystal of brilliance that drew all of uh, the rest of the team to the project. So I really think Burl deserves uh, a lot of credit for, for the Macintosh. And how many people were on the original Macintosh team? Well, it started very small and, and then grew, you know, to be very large. So in the, the early days that matter, I would say maybe a dozen or so people. Um, there were initially four people. Uh, by the time I started on the team in February 81, there were more like seven people. And then, you know, during the whole first year of development, there were less than 20. But then the second year, it probably doubled to maybe about almost 50 people. Uh, the third year, it doubled again. So by the time the Mac shipped, uh, there were 100 people. Uh, in the Macintosh division. I see. So I'm just curious, how did you become interested in computers? I understand you were actually a student here at Berkeley at one point, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I was a grad student at Berkeley, but I was already way interested in computers by then. I was a a grad student in computer science, but in high school they had a a terminal connected to a time-sharing computer about 10 miles away and a class in it. So I took a class in 11th grade and just fell in love with uh, programming. It seemed very natural and and easy to me. And then uh, later I, I became entranced with the potential of uh, personal computers, small computers, and how they could help uh, individuals. Uh, back 25 years ago, that was a bit of a radical idea. Today, uh, the vision's been fully realized. Computers are a part of um, almost everybody's everyday life. It was a critical step in making that happen. The key thing about the Mac is it was the first computer that was easy enough to use uh, for an ordinary person to enjoy computing. When you started working on the Mac, did you know what you were getting into? Did you know that it would be something that would be so revolutionary? No, well, we knew we knew it would would it was attempting to be a radical step forward. Uh, but we had all seen plenty of ambitious projects uh, fail for various reasons. Uh, not only fail in the marketplace, but even fail to come to the marketplace. So we thought it had a huge amount of potential, uh, and we were pretty confident. Uh, but it, 
you know, our success was by no means assured. At the same time, Apple was working on the Lisa computer, which also had a graphical user interface. How was that different from the That's Macintosh? That's right. Well, the, the Lisa, in, in many ways, was sort of the big brother of, of the Macintosh. The big difference was the Lisa cost five times as much of a, uh, as a Macintosh. It was viewed as an office computer. The Lisa initially cost $10,000, which is way too expensive to be affordable to an individual. Uh, Apple had a heritage of making affordable computers with the Apple One and the Apple Two. The Lisa was an attempt to expand into the office or enterprise market, whereas we saw the Macintosh as more bringing it all back home, Apple to its roots, trying to take the advances that were made with the Lisa user interface and make them available to everyday ordinary people. And there were lots of other differences too. The Mac was a much intended to be a more open system. Apple was writing all the applications for the Lisa computer itself, whereas the Mac was following in the footsteps of the Apple II, trying to take advantage of uh, third-party developers. So in my opinion, the Mac had uh, a lot more spirit and heart than, than the Lisa, which was aimed at a more elitist group. So earlier this year, we actually had Jeff Raskin on our show. I guess he's a self-professed creator of the Mac. How much truth is there to that? Well, Jeff was, what I would say, Jeff is the creator of the Macintosh project, as, as opposed to the Macintosh computer. There's no doubt that Jeff, Jeff named the Macintosh. He started the project. He gathered the initial team. Uh, but then he got at odds with Steve Jobs fairly early in the development cycle when we were still just starting out. And he ended up being forced off the team at just about the time I started on it. He was, Steve forced him to take a three-month leave of absence. And then when he came back from the leave of absence, he was sort of, you know, at odds with the team and not really helpful. Uh, everyone could see that. And he ended up leaving entirely in uh, June or July of 1981, still before most of the computer was designed. So I would say Jeff is not responsible for the Mac, the design of the Macintosh and some of the, but Jeff is responsible for the core concept of trying to make a computer that was both extremely high volume, inexpensive, and very, very easy to use. So I give Jeff full credit for uh, that vision, but he doesn't deserve that much credit for the realization of the vision. So we hear a lot about what kind of person Steve Jobs was like. Could you tell us in your own words uh, what it was like working with him? Oh, Steve, Steve is, you know, he. I sometimes say he's simultaneously the best person I've ever worked for and the worst. He's quite a character. He's extremely passionate. He's extremely bright and, and creative, but he is also extremely difficult. And a lot of the heart of my book, really, are, are telling different stories uh, about how Steve motivated us or some of his uh, unusual behavior. Uh, like a good example is a, is a story in the book I call Saving Lives where Steve was a bit upset that the Macintosh was taking too long to start up and told us that if we could just shave a few seconds uh, off the boot-up time, that would be the equivalent of saving dozens of lives uh, because so many millions of people would use the Mac. Those few seconds would add up to lifetimes uh, each year. Right. So in the uh, TV serial Pirates of Silicon Valley, um, there's a portrayal of how Apple Computer got started. Was it accurate from uh, what you've seen, or is it sort of a dramatization? I, I really love... I, I enjoyed that that movie. I thought Noah Wiley did a fantastic job portraying Steve, and it was accurate as far as those things go. Many of the details were sort of caricatured, you know, um, you know, sort of reduced to simple terms uh, for dramatic purposes. But I'd say the heart of that was very true, in my, in my opinion. I loved how that movie ended with a confrontation between Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, where Steve found out that Bill was copying the Mac for Windows and um, 
confronted him, and finally Steve said, well, accepting the fact that Bill was going to copy it, he goes, well, we're still way better than you. And then it ends with Bill Gates saying, well, you don't get it, Steve. That doesn't matter. <laughs> Sounds like a mythic uh, story yeah. there, huh? <laughs> well, I think that really um, you know, makes a, a very deep point. Uh, some, you know, why, why uh, the good guys don't always win. Uh, what do you think about the uh, current or, uh, offering system, OS X? Uh, I have a mixed opinion of it. I think it's really great in certain dimensions. Uh, it looks gorgeous and is quite robust compared to the earlier systems. You know, my complaints with it center around, it puts a priority on how it looks more than how it behaves. So I think there's uh, some usability glitches that, you know, I wish it could be a little bit smoother. But overall, I think it's far and away uh, the best operating system commercially available for everyday people to use. I mean, it, you know, it's much, much, much better than Windows XP. <laughs> so when you worked on the original offering system, what kind of limitations did you have? Well, the biggest limitation was a memory limitation. We had fairly ambitious, low-cost objectives, and in order to do that, we only gave the Macintosh 128 kbytes of memory. Uh, for people today, uh, that's uh, one-eighth of a megabyte of memory. So, you know, less than 1% of the memory in computers even even five years ago uh, and so that was our biggest challenge was to shoehorn all the functionality and the great user interface into an extremely limited memory space and then of course another constraint as uh, a commercial project we always we were rushing to get the computer to market uh, so schedule was another insistent pressure you know Steve Jobs believes in very very ambitious schedules and so we were always behind no matter how fast we worked we couldn't work fast enough so what are you doing these days well, most recently, I've been volunteering at an organization called the Open Source Applications Foundation. Mm -hmm. About five years ago, um, a light dawned, and I realized that open source software, sometimes called free software, uh, could really fix many of the problems in the computer industry. So ever since then, I've been uh, trying to help make open source software become more accepted and started working with um, another computer industry legend, Mitch Kapoor, the guy who designed Lotus 1, 2, 3. Mm -hmm. uh, when he started a few years ago, uh, what's called OSAF, the Open Source Applications Foundation. Uh, but then in 2003, I kind of took a hiatus from that to work on my book. So I actually started writing stories for the book in June 2003, started developing some unique web software to publish the book on the web mm -hmm. uh, for the Folklore site in August 2003. And then uh, by October 2003, I had signed the book contract with O'Reilly and was pressured to get all the writing done by June 2004. <laughs> so um, up until last October, um, the book was my full-time job. Now that it's done, I'm doing a little bit of promotion for the book, like talking to you, mm -hmm. uh, and just beginning to start think about what my next programming project will be. And what are some of the trends you see in the information technology these days? What do you like? Well, I still think that the network is having a profound impact on how we use our computers each day. And even though that was sort of the keynote of the last 10 years, I think it will continue. I, we're, we're still not exploiting the network uh, nearly as much as we could be. And then I think uh, there's still a long way to go in, use, in terms of usability, what I call the system management problem. 
I think, is, is really vexing to most computer users. You know, you use your, your machine for enough time, and things start going wrong. And I think we can use both the network and more powerful computers to really make a difference at, you know, creating a much better user experience for people. And then I'm really intrigued myself for, for the next step in usability. You know, the user interface has always been what's most important to me. Mm-hmm. And I see uh, 3D user interfaces where the world behind the screen mirrors the physical world as one of the next big steps toward that. I'm interested in possibly working in that area. Sort of like uh, the way video games are today, right. with better and better simulations of the world. Great. I guess we're running a little bit out of time. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself, uh, your experience at Apple, or your book? Oh, not really. It was. Uh, I feel very lucky. I guess is is the best thing to say that I was in the right place at the right time to work on such a fantastic difference that ended up making uh, such a, a big difference for people in the world. So I'm just really grateful. I got to be in the position I was in, and then I wrote the book to sort of celebrate that experience, mm-hmm. uh, both to give a little bit of recognition to people like Burl who hadn't gotten that much, but also uh, the... I love the people I worked with so much. In a very real sense, uh, the book is a commemoration of the greatness of of, of the original Mac team. And so, it, it, you know, one of my pleasures now, I, I got, well, last week I got 60 books delivered to my house. I'm getting to give give a copy of the book to all the people who, who worked on the Mac. That's been really fun. Uh, Mr. Fairchild, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks. Thanks uh, for your time. Okay, you're welcome. It was fun. And we were just talking to Mr. Andy Hertzfield, one of the co-creators of the Apple Macintosh computer and author of the recent book, Revolution in the Valley. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll have the Grokatron 5000 and the question of the week. So stay tuned. To Berkeley Grox. Well, Mr. Hertzfeld has agreed to join us on the Grokotron 5000, uh, formerly known as the computer Deep Blue. Today's question is Mac or PC? And for these following five subjects, uh, Mr. Hertzfeld will tell us his opinion. Okay. Subject number one The President of the United States, George W. Bush. PC. <laughs> you think he crashes sometimes, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think we have a terrible government right now, almost as bad as Windows. Uh, subject number two, the new Star Wars movies. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, I'm a George Lucas fan, but I'll have to tilt to, to PC 
see you on that one too. You don't think uh, it's as innovative as it used to be, huh? Well, I still have I still have hopes for uh, number three. Subject number three: Pfizer's blockbuster drug, Sildenafil, also known as Viagra. Gee, I'd say the Mac because the Mac is a lot sexier than the PC. <laughs> Awesome. All right, subject number four, uh, a drug of a different type found commonly in the Bay Area, Pete's Coffee. Pete's Coffee? Uh, definitely Mac. Uh, high quality. And finally, subject number five, pop superstar Michael Jackson. Hmm, well, let's see. I'd say, you know, I'd, I'd kind of call that one in the middle. I think he has, like, Mac-like aspects, especially earlier in his career. I mean, I think Michael Jackson really is, is a genius, but then I think uh, he sort of um, undermines himself. <laughs> uh, and so maybe Mac transitioning to PC. Uh-oh. Okay, great. Well, I guess that rounds it off for this week's edition of Grokotron 5000. Uh, Mr. Hertzfeld, thanks for joining us for the Grokotron 5000. Oh, you're welcome. And now here's the crazy Scotsman with the answer to last week's question of the week. That's right. Oh, excuse me when I'm having a bowel movement. Uh, it's not really like great because I had a huge chunk of haggis. And this haggis has a lot of colons in it. But it's going through my large colon as well. But the interesting thing is, the large colon's sucking out the last bits of water out of the haggis. And that's the great thing about it. Excuse me while I take this dump. Ah, uh, thank you very much, you crazy Scotsman. And now I know that the colon is not just a, a punctuation mark. And so uh, I've been wondering, what is a teraflop? Is it a, like a lot of flip-flop? If you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail.com. Uh, you won't win anything, but uh, you may just have a faster computer. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Dala Short.